0: And I realized that there was kind of a gulf between the advice I would give another person and the advice I would give myself. And interestingly, what I noticed is that when we're trying to coach or guide the people we love to do something difficult, we do not try to make them swerve discomfort, nor do we invalidate their discomfort. We remind them of their capacity to do difficult things and the resources that are available to them. And we tell them to forgive themselves quickly and so what do we have there we have impulse control self-efficacy and relapse prevention from the world i'm in in addiction and so all of a sudden i saw hold on everything goes back to self-compassion
1: hi i'm derek mills welcome to the Glow podcast Sharu izadi is a behavioral change specialist and author her first book The Kindness Method, Change Your Habits for Good Using Self-Compassion and Understanding is intended to help us change habits by developing kindness towards ourselves. Her most recent book, The Last Diet, focuses on changing unhealthy eating habits and developing positive body image through self-compassion. Cheru and I discuss the ways she believes that diets cause more harm than good. She shares her own, as she puts it, extreme measures to lose weight. Our conversation revolves around the ways that kindness will help you find yourself and also meet yourself, to learn to see yourself as you truly are as an ongoing, never-ending process. Cheru believes that working with kindness and self-compassion is a project of growing awareness. And I completely agree. Nurture kindness is one of our core values at GLOW. It's a concept that can be easily misunderstood. So I'm grateful that in this episode, Cheru develops a clear statement about what kindness is and what it is not. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Sheru Izadi. Hi, Sheru. It's so great to be here with you today and, and lovely to meet you.
0: Thank you, Derek. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here
1: so i heard you say in another podcast interview that your parents made up your name is there a story there
0: <laughs> actually my dad's name is shah Rukh, so it's like the masculine of it but i don't know any people who have um the name Sharu. there's a horse on youtube okay um i think that's it that's all i that's all i found so far so yeah it's pretty made up so it's actually worked in my favor um, with books coming out like the whole SEO thing. Right.
1: Good for SEO. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Wasn't the best growing up, but now it's, you know, now it's delivering.
1: <laughs> yeah. There's a lot that's not the best while growing up you know, for some more than others. Yeah. I
0: couldn't agree
1: more. Right. And there's a lot encoded in that statement you just made, which I know we'll get into uh, in our conversation here. Yeah. You know, I, so I, read your first book, The Kindness Method, Changing Habits for Good. And uh, I received your newest book last night and I I got through parts of it. Um, Both are, are really powerful. And what I feel while reading them is that if you're listening and you're wanting to change anything about yourself and you're finding it hard to do so, or if you're stuck in any way, people should read your books. It really doesn't matter what, in my opinion, what it is that you're working through. Uh, you know, part of why your work is important to me, uh, there are a variety of reasons. I'll just name a couple. Uh, one of our core values at, at GLOW is nurture kindness. And uh, we have three core values and uh, each have three supporting key behaviors. And the word kindness, especially as it pertains to a group dynamic, uh, can be easily misunderstood. And we almost didn't use the word kindness as one of our Core values because of that and so i I hope to ask you about kindness in in a moment and another thing that struck me or that moves me about your method is that you really invite people into a a personalized project of an ongoing uh, growing of awareness uh, building up of our self-esteem it's it's a behavior change uh, that's grounded in kindness towards ourselves all of which as a foundation of, of sitting in discomfort. And that ultimately creates the space for us to expand our understanding of how and why we avoid and, and soothe pain in its various forms. And that ultimately you're inviting us to learn. I, I feel like you're helping us crack ourselves open to increase our receptivity to learning and actually learning how to learn in terms of how we show up with ourselves and with others. And before I ask you my first question, I'm wondering if it's okay if I read a bit about what Marissa uh, Bate is that? Her, am I pronouncing her first name correctly, Marissa or Marisa? Marisa, Marisa yeah. Okay. Marisa, yeah. So uh, I'll just read some sections from um her forward and then from this article that uh, she wrote about you. Uh, she says, Her frankness makes you realize even The wisest of souls have their demons. In fact, that's precisely why they are so wise. And she recalls how you said to her, it's not so much about finding yourself, but about meeting yourself. And then from the article, which I'll post a link to in the show notes. However, something has definitely shifted that's referring to herself. Vazadi never told me to quit wine. She just asked me to understand why I was drinking it and in turn understand myself a bit better. Looking after yourself is, in some ways, a statement of faith and self-belief. It is the acknowledgment that you and what you intend to do is worth making the most of. Once I began to believe that, I learned to enjoy wine again rather than rely on it. And so my first question to you is, can you share with us how you came to be perceived as the wisest of souls? Uh, who is able to share with us <laughs> <laughs> your demons and, and, and learnings in, in ways that are so helpful and skillful.
0: I I mean I'm certainly not the wisest of souls. I think Maurice has been very generous there. But you know what? I've I've never professed to not need any of this stuff. That's the thing. Like I'm really quite against this whole guru-ish hand yourself over to someone. You know, you were saying earlier, like that I I give people the tools and let them let them work it out for themselves. Because frankly, I don't profess to know what anyone should be doing, kind of including myself, you know? And I always say there are people who will buy my book and be like way further ahead than I am when they start. And in what in whatever context, whether it's anxiety or codependency or binge eating or that, you know, the specific area, those are probably the specific areas that I struggle with most. That I use the, me- the, the tools from the kindness method for. Um, but I think the wisdom kind of comes in the, when I look at other self-help people and psychologists and, you know, influencers, um, I often think they're wise when they don't profess to know everything. That's always really big for me. Like when people seem to have hard and fast rules about like how many days it takes to change a habit and, um, you know, that if you hand yourself over to someone and some program and that there'll be one size fits all. And if you follow what I say, then it'll work for you. Like, I, I can't tell you, Derek, like how many years, how much money and time myself and my family gave to this idea that someone would be able to fix me. And I wish that someone had just given me tools that said, why don't you ask yourself a few questions? Like every now and then, why don't you just ask yourself rather than trying to fix yourself? Why don't you try to understand how you came to be this way with just a curious compassion from a bit of a distance, as opposed to immediately berating yourself?
1: Yeah. And you share in your newest book, The Last Diet, Discover the Secret to Losing Weight for Good, your story, which is, I think you said that in an updated version of it, you found the courage to share a bit more in the updated version. Is that correct?
0: Yes, you're the first person to ask me about that. Um, how interesting. Do you know what? I often come come to these podcasts and I'm like, okay, you know, I don't need to prepare that much because actually it tends to be about my story and everything else. And I love that you picked up on that because that was one of my biggest fears. And you know, this-I've been reading a lot about shame. And when I wrote the first book, I was really scared, obviously. Um, because I was doing something new. I never thought I would be someone who wrote self-help books and told people like you know I had just got there so I was I was scared um but I was lucky and you know I think anyone would have taken the opportunities that I was given and I've I've been very lucky because a lot of people resonated with it but you know I continue to use these tools and continue to require these tools perhaps more than ever when I had to do stuff in the public eye all of a sudden because I also struggle with a stammer and so there was a lot kind of working against me to be propelled from having like no self-esteem and being quite horrible to myself to all of a sudden like leading the way for other people. And I was like, this is quick. So I was scared and I left stuff out and I knew it was my prerogative to do so. You know, I can share what I like. And and then I realized that something had happened that I hadn't, that I hadn't even shared with some of my closest friends. And the more I spoke to people in confidence, the more I realized that whether I liked it or not, they were looking to me for an example of someone who had got really okay with themselves. And I knew that there was one thing left that I needed to talk about. And that was that I had gone to such an extreme to try to lose weight that I had secretly gone and had a, uh, an operation to put this like band around my stomach. Mm -hmm. And it quickly became um, an emergency situation where I had to have it taken out. And it was very lonely and very traumatic. And the interesting thing is, really beat myself up about that, that I was really ashamed and and like really ashamed. And I lied to people about it, like my closest friends. And through these exercises, this shift took place, even since writing the first book, you know, this shift took place where I was like, God, that's the final piece of this compassion bit. Like what kid grows up loathing their own body so much that then they then go and have an operation after trying everything else to try to change the way they are externally blames themselves for the whole thing in secret and then gets, and then doesn't have any support around it and is all alone and then suffers because anyone who's had that operation will tell you it is, I mean, different strokes for different folks, but as far as I'm concerned, it's hands down one of the most hideous things I've ever done. Mm. And obviously it doesn't change your behaviors, because it's, it's, it isn't like changing your size teaches you how to eat differently. It isn't, it isn't like when you lose a certain amount of weight, the scale will just print out this certificate that says, okay, now you don't have binge eating disorder or, right. you know, now you've learned how to eat differently. So it was hideous. But I called the publishers and they said, do you want to change anything? And I was like, I'm ready to put this in. And then I'm done. And it was a really powerful moment for me. And there wasn't, it was fine. I don't know what I thought would happen. But actually, it, it brought me much closer to my friends too, which was great. Because they already knew, which is kind of embarrassing, but you know, but people guess stuff, and you're not hiding stuff as well as you think you are
1: <laughs> a <lot of> <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I was so glad that the book arrived last night, and I had a chance to get through it because reading that particular section, I could really the way you wrote about it uh, with such clarity and vulnerability made me feel that pain to whatever extent i I could. So I can't identify with it. I have no idea what it's like that, that, uh, that you went through, uh, as well as your mother's attempts to help you and to navigate that. I, I, I kept going back and forth trying to imagine what the two of you were feeling in this dynamic of, of each of you, uh, you know, working together. It, it was powerful. Yeah.
0: And you know what I didn't, I had a, I was interviewed a few months ago and I got kind of annoyed at this woman because she kept trying to like go at my mom. Not, you know, not go at her, but you know, there's, it's like we've really turned on a dime very quickly. Like I know that we know what's problematic now when we're talking about weight. And trust me, I'm the first one who's on that bus. Um, But to expect people to change their mindset so quickly and start getting angry at mothers whose kids are coming home and saying, kids are being mean to me. And then the mother does what she knows is best, which is to take the child to the doctor. And the doctor says, put this kid on a diet. And now we know that diets cause more harm than good. Like, I think it's a lot to be going around blaming people for that stuff. You know, if your kid's coming home every day saying I'm crying and you know the logical way to deal with it, and we're not all psychologists and it's, you know, and so I really wanted to write that in a sensitive way because my mom was extraordinary and like, Um, really just wanted me to be happy. And if, and if the world was kinder to people who looked and spoke the way I did, then there's no way she would have wanted me to be in any discomfort ever, you know, less alone around something that's such a joy like food.
1: Yeah. Well, you accomplished that, all of that for sure.
0: Thank you. I'm, I'm very grateful to you. And it's, it feels good to have to talk about that which i haven't done before. I'm very vulnerable, but then i think, well, you put it in the book. What do you think you <laughs> know what do you think you're doing now? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, you help pave the path for others to express vulnerability and enter into some very scary and dark places, and i think that leads us into kindness. I, I you know, you mentioned the instinct to want to fix and that in many cases it's not about fixing, it's about living with and understanding and excavating. And and so let's start with kindness. Like what, how do you, after spending so much time with kindness and compassion and uh, growing self-awareness, how, wh- what does that word mean to you now, uh, or is a better way to enter into a discussion about kindness? Like what, what kindness is not perhaps, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm also curious if there's any uh, research either in in your domain or in other domains where this concept of kindness is is being applied. That's kind of interesting to you or, or surprising you in any way.
0: Absolutely. I think if we look at it as compassion in first instance, just it's it's just the semantics really, but Kristen Neff, Dr. Kristen Neff is an extraordinary uh, mind on self-compassion specifically. Mm -hmm. And there's almost nothing she says that I don't agree with. Um, and I remember reading her book after I'd written The Kindness Method. And obviously, you know, I'm not a doctor. I've never professed to know more than I know. And But there was this, like, huge exhale. I was like, oh, she agrees with everything I've said. <laughs> this is amazing because, I, re- you know, she's amazing. Um, so definitely in that sense, looking at self, self-compassion is really good. But I think more and more um, organizational psychology, you know, behavioral change in general is very much looking at the power of um, self-compassion, self-awareness, self-esteem and the role that that has in how we behave um, when, it, when it comes you know in, in my world kindness became about redefining the word from being doing whatever I need want to do right now to doing what I'll be glad I did tomorrow, to doing what I would tell someone I love to do, to doing the thing that I know that someone um, who loves me would want me to do and I realized that there was kind of a gulf between the advice I would give another person and the advice I would give myself. And interestingly, what I noticed is that when we're trying to coach or guide the people we love to do something difficult, we do not try to make them swerve discomfort, or, nor do we invalidate their discomfort. We remind them of their capacity to do difficult things and the resources that are available to them. And we tell them to forgive themselves quickly. And so what do we have there? We have impulse control, self-efficacy and uh, relapse prevention from, you know, from the world I'm in in addiction. Um, And so all of a sudden I saw, hold on, everything goes back to self-compassion. If you define self-compassion for yourself the same way you would if you were supporting someone else, not the kind of... um, the definitions of self-kindness that I had before, which were around things like isolation and binge eating and the things that gave me short-term comfort, but were ultimately making the situation worse long-term. And so marrying together that conversation or reconciling kindness and discomfort is really quite tricky. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Um, And for me, it was about looking at it almost like I was speaking to a child. So for me, it was around binge eating, right? That was my biggest thing. And now I use this across the board in everything I do. Um, but I speak, I soothe myself when I'm going through discomfort as though I'm speaking to a child who is getting ready, who is, um, sort of getting used to the new status quo. I wouldn't get mad at that kid. I wouldn't, uh, I would expect the kid to put up a fight if I was disrupting their routine or taking away their comfort or their friend. Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't blame the kid for having a tantrum, but I know that if I repeated the same thing over and over again with clarity and compassion and understanding that eventually, much like any other form of mastery, they would get the, they'd get the memo and eventually they'd forget what was going on in the first place. And when I started having that conversation between mind and body, where the mind was saying, I know what to do, but body, I know you're going to put up a fight. All of a sudden I could be compassionate and firm. And I realized that that's where kindness lived.
1: Yeah, I was going to bring this up later in our conversation, but I think this is a good time to do so. Uh, about a third of the way into uh, the kindness method book, you bring up the concept of the couch analogy, where you imagine someone you know inside of you sitting on a couch, kind of lazy and, and taking up all the space on the couch. And then you ask the reader to invite someone else in to think about and to have a conversation with that person. And so when you mentioned the, 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 inner, the child, which I'm assuming you're referring to an inner child, how do you, A, is that correct? Are you, are you, are you actively speaking to your inner child? Uh, and, and B, if, if yes, do you tend to think about conversations with yourself as conversations between multiple selves and just as a background i i think the the work that's being done on healthy multiplicity of selves versus multiple personality disorder which is something entirely different i think i think is incredibly healthy and so i was curious about your take on that
0: yeah i do too i think in a child work is great i think in fact, what I tend to do is I tend to ask my clients in my, in my coaching practice, when they want to behave in a way that is not aligned with their current values, I say to them, you know, or goals, I say to them, which age of you is making this decision, is informing this decision? And the same goes for the way that we speak to ourselves. So again, working in addiction, I saw these different um, interventions. And you know, in the 12-step programs, which of course, we all have our pros and cons about, but there is this idea that we're all working a program already so you can choose to change your program but it's not like you're just listening to nothing (laughs) and you're deciding whether to project something onto it Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden I realized okay so I'm already speaking to myself all day and I'm having a different conversation to myself than my friend's having with herself so mine must have come from somewhere pretty specific. <laughs> and I'd like to do some inquiry as to where that soundtrack just came from. And then I kept saying, seeing all these things on Instagram, which was like, hey, if you have a negative thought, just replace it with a positive thought. And I was like, I am so far gone. You've actually lost me. I mean, that's, that's like climbing Everest to me. And I'm not even sure that's possible. So if it is good for you, but not for me. Um, and I kind of thought, well, I could debate with it. I could fact check it. If this is a program I've been running for a while without sort of updating that software, and it's informed by the things that teachers told me or magazines told me, and now I fundamentally disagree with, um, or indeed have disproven, and they are essentially fake news, then I could actually it put forward a compelling case to start updating that narrative if I could. For me... It, you know, my self-esteem and self-belief was so low. My negative self-talk was so extreme. And now I know that that's true because I've spoken to thousands of people and I can see, yeah, I was pretty much on the extreme end. It was way too ambitious to try to put forward a compelling case for this idea that I was going to wake up and start being like, I am a goddess. I am, you know, whatever else. It was easier to be convinced that I could just fact check and update stuff. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, okay, I mean, I'm just trying to tell myself the truth. I'm just trying to be fair um, the way I would with someone else, whether I even liked them. And I realized I was t- treating myself worse, speaking to myself in a worse way than someone I didn't even know. <laughs> yeah. um, and so that's where the sort of debate thing came in and those, and those exercises with coming in. Because, you know, I've read a lot of self-help books where... There's a lot of gems in there, but I really hate this idea of taking one voice and replacing it with another. And it's like, I think people can end up feeling like they're not doing well enough because it's not happening quickly enough. And you don't know who's reading that book. You don't know if they've suffered horrendous trauma um, and they've just picked up your book. And to normalize and trivialize and get lost in this toxic positivity where you think that you've got the answer to everyone's problems is just not
1: my vibe. (laughs) Like you, I don't know what it's like to reside in someone else's body i know certainly for me any efforts to replace with or to just be x for me is a form of bypass it's not it's not acknowledging to continue with your analogy it's not inviting in accepting understanding the person sitting lazily on the couch or the person doing whatever it is that person is doing on the couch and it, yeah, I agree. It, it's in my experience, it's a, for me, a, a form of, of my own pain, discomfort, bypass. And so that's why I just resonated so much with you including that in the book. And, um, and that seems to be so much about, uh, there's so much about your method in terms of the the mapping and the, the conversations with oneself that seem to really embrace this concept of what does it mean to uh, cultivate a healthy multiplicity of selves dynamic within oneself?
0: Yeah, I think so. And I think also it's that sort of, um, I don't know about you, but when I see kids now, um, having done more work on myself and the work and whatever you want to call it, um, when I see kids now, I become very, very aware of where I was at when I was that age. And I can believe that I grew up blaming myself for not managing childhood experiences better and thinking I should have known better. Um, it just breaks my heart, but it, it also kind of reinforces the compassion that I have for myself now. And I kind of think, wow, it's amazing how quickly we just decide this is our, you know, it can be your response. You can decide to make it your responsibility to change it. But this idea that it's our fault, you know, and I I get that with people who have disordered eating and like myself want to manage their weight by healing their binge eating disorder and know that that would be a natural byproduct as opposed to dieting. And they blame themselves constantly. You know, It doesn't matter if they were put on a diet when they were eight and they've had a, a, you know, a scarcity mindset, they've had a diagnosis, diets are designed this way, you're, you know, you're, you're, sw- you're swimming against a current that was set up for you to fail, and still people will sit and say, I'm weak, I'm stupid, I have all the information I need, why can't I do this? Um, and it will be a behavior that was ingrained when they were like six or seven. And it's like you would never think to say that to a kid, you would never think that that kid should have known better. And yet we just carry on. And so, and so I guess with the inner child stuff to answer your question, the way it manifests itself, I guess, in my work right now in my own personal life, cause I'm not qualified enough to delve into that specific area myself with other clients, but in my own work for myself, the way that it shows up is when I'm triggered, I try to think when was the first time I felt this? And usually it was childhood and it helps me to understand why it's not my fault. And then that take, that tends to take the sort of stress out of the trigger and the urgency out of the trigger, you know, and you can kind of like diffuse a situation with some compassion. Um, And it helps me think straight about it and decide what I want to do about it. So again, it isn't just like, because I deserve it and we all do, it's also a really efficient way to get stuff done, being nice to yourself.
1: Yeah, it's so powerful to practice that self-compassion to the the child. And unless that child is incredibly unusual and, and 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 exceedingly precocious, yeah, I would think that the metacognitive abilities that that's required to to do what we do as adults are just not present at those ages. And so what you described in terms of of, of how you navigate that moment is that how you navigate negative self-talk you refer to a crucial habit needing to to be how we conquer and and navigate negative self-talk
0: i see habit change and the fact that i've stumbled across how to you know because i worked in addiction stumbled across how to take the jargon out of evidence-based tools essentially and never profess to be creating something new What I think is clever about what I've done is that habit change is the Trojan horse that I use. It's the carrot that I dangle. So that in the meantime, in the pursuit of habit change, people like themselves more, know themselves better and believe in themselves more. And as such, by the time they've achieved their goal, realize that they have developed a a suite of transferable tools that are about to help them in their professional lives, in their relationships, in the choices that, that, that they make for themselves for the rest of their lives. And then habit change becomes... Something that you create the, the path of least resistance for whenever you meet a point at which you could be you, a better routine would benefit you. Um, it becomes a lifelong commitment to those things, the self-awareness, the self-compassion, the self-esteem. Um, and so I kind of tell it, it does work. it will change your habits, but that's why I'm I think the tough love thing helps you change an isolated habit and it totally works. And I don't like these people who are so binary about like no, you've got to go kindness or you've got to go boot camp or whatever. In my opinion, the thing that makes it so that you protect your changes is the compassion that you've learned to show yourself in every area of your life. And therefore, when it comes to behaving, if you create a landscape of compassion for yourself in all the behaviors that you demonstrate towards yourself, be they professional, personal, the way you speak to yourself, et cetera, and make that your commitment, then habit change becomes a far easier byproduct, I believe.
1: And you say core to the nature of the conversations that we're having with ourselves are based on assumptions, often false assumptions. And so how do you help people work through excavating what those assumptions are and and changing the narrative?
0: You know, Derek, sometimes they're assumptions. I've worked with coaches before and I'll say something about myself, which is like quite fair, like something bad I've done or something that's not great and I really shouldn't have done and I should work on. And they will be so quick to be like, no, it's fine. It's fine. And I kind of think, no, it's not, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to operate in the world as if I'm an exception. I'm here to operate to the best of my ability. (laughs) Um, And so... What I what I tend to do with clients is is just say, okay, when you're trying to do something difficult and you listen in, what are the things you're telling yourself? What are the justifications? What are the reasons that you're telling yourself you're not capable of doing this? And they will give me things like, well, you know, I'm just the kind of person who starts things and doesn't um, finish them. And I'll think, okay, well, first of all, when did you first hear that? Who does that sound like? Do you accuse anyone of that ever? Or is that even part of your vernacular? <laughs> Uh, very often the answer is no. Um, the second thing, well, using that particular example, I mean, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy if ever you wanted one, as soon as you hit discomfort. Um, but also I'll say to them, like, well, so name me 10 things that you've started and finished since that person told you that about yourself. It's literally as simple as that. Like I am no wizard here. I take everything back to common sense and I put forward a compelling case using rational just facts You don't deserve to call yourself those things because they're not true. And you know what? Maybe they were. And the interesting thing is we don't check in. I always say we do professional resumes where we say, you know, I used to be not very good at this. And then I did this training and I had this experience and now I'm good at it. But with our personal lives, we don't. And so we still call ourselves the same stuff. We called ourselves when we were like 11. Even I do it sometimes. I said this in a podcast recently. I'll go around and say, I always say, I'm just so unfit. I'm Mm. just so physically unfit. Mm. I've kept this weight off for like six, six, seven, however many years now. I work out like four times a week and it still just falls out of my mouth. You know? Yeah. Fact-checking. That's it. It's fact-checking. After that, if you want to go further and go to like work with a self-love coach and basically, you know, listen to, get it to a point where you're listening to Enya in your head all day, then I'm really happy for you. But for me, it was about first and foremost, let's just get real. Let's get really honest about the fact that you're giving yourself a disproportionately hard time here. Um, But that doesn't mean you're perfect either. And I think people like that conversation where you can reconcile these two things together because I speak to a lot of people who have been, the thing they want from me is the belief that one day an all or nothing person could, could become moderate, could hold those two things together. Because say, I'm not perfect, but I don't deserve for people to be mean to me, including me.
1: (laughs) Right. For someone who's incredibly binary in that way, with respect to a certain thing, that that must seem like such a far, so far off, it's just not obtainable. One of the tools you mentioned you use as a way to kind of externalize what it was that you're referring to are uh, maps. And you talk a lot about maps in both books. And uh, you say in The Kindest Method, that change doesn't begin when your everyday life looks different. It begins when you do your first map. Can you tell us a bit about that?
0: Yeah, I think putting pen to paper is really powerful. And I know I'm not the first person to say that, but um, when I was working in addiction services, it just felt so much more like a collaboration to put something between, just a piece of paper between myself and the client. And when something came up that resonated with them, They would just write it wherever they wanted on the page. And you know, there is evidence based behind this. You look at node link mapping and how one thought can be led onto another one and all that stuff. But Mm -hmm. for me, just to bring it back to basics, it was just like, when I would want to look at a list, when I would want to look at a collection of things that I had managed to do right, or a collection of things that disproved this idea that I wasn't capable. And I wanted to look at them in, in that moment where I was doubting myself and all I could, it was like a, 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 a wave of things, remembering things that I failed at and, and you know, criticism as opposed to the rest of it. For me, it was much more profound to look at it in map form. Visually, it was like, wow, there's 200 things there. I didn't have to turn the page. I didn't have to, you know, it just mm. felt like poof, right there before I even looked at the words wow, there's a whole page full of stuff. Mm-hmm. And that was really powerful for me. And so, yes, I know, as with so many of those th- these, these things, there's evidence and there's reasons why they work. But I can also tell you on the ground, in the real life, in real life every single day, the sorts of things that work for people. And it's that stuff when you can just glance and get what you need, frictionless. <laughs> um, you know, frictionless, which is interesting because imposing friction is essentially what I'm paid to help people to do. But yeah, that's what, you know, if you can just glance at it, it's just much more powerful in map form, I think. And also clients and, you know, people do that with their kids now. So people will send me pictures mm. of, you know, these are all the kids, These are all the things that my kid is proud of themselves for this week. And we put it up and we framed it. And, you know, over the course of a year, this woman put, um, this woman actually sent me a copy of, these two posters that her kids had created. And she said every week they sit on a Sunday and write down five things they were proud of themselves for that week and five things they liked about themselves. And the parents did it too. And then at the end of the year, they framed it. Yeah, and they were maps. And I know it sounds basic of me, but that wouldn't have been as nice if they were lists. (laughs) You know, so
1: um,
0: I think visually it it does make a difference. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's art. Yeah. So much of what you write about and the therapeutic process that you help people navigate has to do with exploring and addressing self-sabotage and i heard you say in another podcast the the concept of like to sit in the discomfort of being happy and liking ourselves as connected to self-sabotage and in in your book you refer to how feeling unworthy was your place of comfort and that your assumption that looking a certain way meant that you had to delay enjoying life Mm -hmm. then you go on to say later in the book because because ultimately you want to push away the discomfort of change and the unknown as quickly as possible and so i'm curious what you think about self-sabotage and if it means anything Different to you now after a few years writing the book and, and working with more clients? And...
0: You know what it does. Um, originally, self sabotage meant to me what it meant uh, you know, as a result of reading a lot of books about self sabotage. And so I'd be looking at these sort of unconscious drivers, uh, perhaps from childhood around worthiness, whether it was around money, being able to sit with money and hold on to it, whether it was about receiving love whatever else it was, and kind of getting in your own way because what you're used to is not that. And even if what you're used to doesn't feel good, that's what you're used to. And so it feels safer. Um, But actually, interestingly enough, because now I have so many conversations with people about food um, and people will come out and diagnose themselves as self-sabotaging. They'll say like, look, this is my problem. I'm sabotaging myself because even though I know that I want to be slimmer, for example, or I want to change my habits, I'm not doing it. Um, And so I must hate myself and I must be sabotaging myself. (laughs) And what I think they might want to do first is realize that their relationship with the behavior is different to their relationship with the outcome. And which one of those things is more important to them will change according to how they're feeling on a certain day. So just because you know what to do and the fact you want to do it. The fact you're not doing it's far more complex than just you not liking yourself or you trying to hold yourself back from success or you thinking that when you achieve your goal, you won't be able to stay there and there will be more expectations of you and all these things that we read in self-sabotage books. And, you know, I agree with them and they're all real. But I will say from my own, I guess, anecdotal research, uh, speaking to people, I think people beat themselves up because they expect themselves to care about the long-term goal in that moment when the habit that they're used to, which comforts them is available to them. And they and they choose that one to soothe them in that moment, as opposed to wait for the more, I, I don't know, meaningful, profound, long-term goal. And they think, why don't I care about myself enough to care about the long-term goal more? And it's like, well, because in that moment, you're only human and your relationship with the behavior became stronger and more needed than your relationship with the potential outcome, which at this point in this moment might might feel quite abstract. And you might be able to, Um, trivialize actually in order to get that hit of whatever you need right now. And that's okay. And I think being aware of it reduces the likelihood of you actually doing it.
1: What's most important in terms of being able to sit in that moment of discomfort and that moment of pain and to take that beat?
0: I think in this day and age, it's honestly in a a much wider way about reminding yourself that your body has an extraordinary capacity to self-regulate if you just sit. I think we're also scared that it doesn't, I'm going to feel like this forever and we're so quick to fix, whether it's picking something up, distraction, phone, obviously being the obvious one, whatever it is. Um, But being able to sit in the discomfort and watch your body start regulating itself physiologically and watch yourself tire of the same thought patterns over and over again, um, it will happen. You will not sit in that discomfort forever uh, whether it's anxiety, whether it's stress, whether, you know, um, and sometimes it can be worth it just as an exercise in, in remembering the capacity of our bodies to do that in, in a time when everything's at, you know, at the end of a phone or whatever else. And so for me, the power came from that certainly. And also the more I was able to do that, the more things on purpose voluntarily in a routine fashion, you know, in, in the context of food or in the context of learning how to meditate, which I just hated, The more when something would happen out of the blue that upset me or scared me or made me anxious, I believed that in 45 minutes I was going to be in a different kind of situation and therefore I didn't make as hasty decisions and therefore I had more impulse control. So I know it sounds like for me, it's like everything's going back to kindness and habit change, but I just really believe it does. (laughs) And that was another example.
1: You address learning to be okay with the fact that being fixed may never come about or the importance of reframing or exploring what being fixed actually means, this chasing of a future state of being fixed or completed. And you refer to a conversation uh, along with the anger that ensued that you had with one of your therapists when that person asked you, well, what would it be like if you were never the weight or the size that you wanted to be?
0: Yeah. I yeah absolutely that was a really big moment for me I had a therapy session with a with my therapist and I'd broken up with someone. It was taking me a really long time to, well, someone had broken up with me, pretty important detail there. Um, and it was taking me a really long time to get over. And I could even, I could suspect that this wasn't about the guy. I was like, this is about more. And I haven't really delved into any of this before. Um, and she, and she noticed that I kept always talking about like, okay, but when I'm slimmer and then I'll do this. And when I'm slimmer, then I'll date. And then I'll go on holiday and then I'll get yeah. that pay rise. And then I'll manage to go for that interesting job or whatever else it was. And she said to me, what if you're never slimmer? And honestly, Derek, I, I was murderously angry at her because I was like, well, then when will my life start? When will I do all that stuff?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I was so angry with her. And I I never would have anticipated being that angry with her. It just came natural. I was overcome. And then I sat down and I started entertaining it. And I was like, and I started seeing overweight people around and kind of being like, well, I hope you're not depriving yourself of joy. I hope you're not thinking that you don't deserve to listen to music today because you didn't manage to lose a few pounds. You know, like. All this horrible punishment I was giving myself all around this. And the interesting thing was I decided to do an experiment and I decided that I was going to act like I was never going to lose an ounce. And this is when I was really unhappy with my size. I mean, I really was at my um, my, my eating and uh, and my health were at the absolute worst. And um, I just started doing the stuff that I anticipated, interestingly, ironically, I guess I started doing this. The same stuff I anticipated doing when I had lost weight, when I had changed myself, when I fixed myself or fixed my outsides at the very least. And um, it turns out when you start doing that stuff and stop behaving like you're always going to be on a diet and like food's going to be taken away from you and like you're not allowed to wear nice things, um, you start changing that and you realize that it actually makes you more inclined to do other things like drink water and take the stairs and (laughs) connect with people and not isolate and be uh, you know, just be kinder to yourself in every possible way and find opportunities to do things that are more holistically healthy and common sense um, associated with common sense, almost as though you would never have those problems in the first place and that you were deserving of those experiences regardless. So I went on dates, I went on holidays and um, I started losing weight (laughs) Uh, and more importantly, I started practicing how I was going to keep it off for once because I was actually enjoying my life.
1: Yeah. It seems counterintuitive,
0: Mm -hmm. but we do that. A lot of people do that. They're like, I'll reward myself with this thing once I've achieved this thing. And yeah, aside from the fact we don't deserve to put enjoyment on hold and quality of life on hold, it's actually, um, counterintuitive. I think It, it slows down the process of change. Um, because if you're depriving yourself of all joy and just focusing on achieving this one goal, um, then if you have a blip or like a deviation from your plan, then there is no sort of landscape to buoy you and bring you back up and go, yeah, but look at the rest of your life where you're liking yourself and valuing yourself and caring about yourself and treating yourself well. Well, There's, there's all this other stuff that it's sandwiched between. At this point, as opposed to just existing on its own and being like, "Oh, okay, another failed attempt, never mind."
1: Yeah. Whereas that blip takes up all the oxygen,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it's all about the blip versus all the other that's positive and and the future that you've envisioned for yourself.
0: Exactly. And actually, the blip becomes just you living moderately. It's not even a blip after a while. It's just once you have a baseline of kindness, it's, it's not even a blip it's just a human being sometimes doing things that are healthy and sometimes not (laughs) but not judging themselves
1: right and you write about that so beautifully as well that when you experience the blip the the energy around that which triggers it's it's an acknowledgement it's a this is present i'm sitting with it i'm navigating it And uh, I won't do justice to how you actually voice that to yourself. You you do that uh, beautifully in the book, but it's really helpful to see how you vulnerably share how you navigate those moments uh, today as as a constant work in progress, as a never fixed uh, human, just trying to navigate the human condition in a way that's most conducive to flourishing and well-being for your, for yourself.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And that will always be the case. Um, and again, the irony is it's when I stopped thinking that I needed any fixing that I became really interested in how much more I could enjoy my life and how I could work on those triggers and work to desensitize them. And if I couldn't desensitize them, then protect myself where I can and it actually helped me, kind of giving up and saying I'm fine as I am really galvanized me to work out what combination of things make me happy. And in the end helped me far surpass any goals that I'd initially set for myself that in the first instance felt, um, insurmountable. And now I just like 15 goals (laughs) ago. So (laughs) that's very cool.
1: That's beautiful. You talk about group support and and one-on-one counseling or therapy and, uh, you say, in, in my ideal world, we would all regularly attend emotional support groups where we connect with others. We wouldn't think of them as gloomy last resort for those with terrible problems. And uh, you also mentioned that those who are avoiding one-on-one counseling, that The kindest Method, uh, your book, can help explore why we are avoiding that type of work. Can you speak to that?
0: Yeah, sure. I think a lot of the time, like it's certainly not a replacement for any of that type of work, but I think for some people it can be an entry into it. So, for example, um, whether it's you know I talk about things like alcohol um, and food quite a lot. So, let's let's say you buy the kindness method because you want to change your drinking habits, and you fall into the category of people who maybe during COVID, for example, there wasn't any like profound or. Uh, serious, any more than we all experience. Reason why you came to drink more. Maybe it was just like you know you started a bit earlier. You started opening the second bottle. It was all good, and now it's kind of tipped over, and and you're not delighted about it. And so you want to get some more. Um, you want to get a few more coping str- strategies, and you want to diversify the things that you go to for boredom and stress and anxiety. Now that COVID's over, kindness method perfect. Let's say you get the kindness method and you you try to reduce the amount you drink. And when you do, you realize that you have wildly underestimated how much you're using this as a crutch and have done for a very long time. Mm -hmm. The jump from there to getting help, be it uh, counseling, AA, uh, mental health support, whatever it is, can be for a lot of people, quite a big jump. And that in itself is a habit to create to explore, to put that time in, to find the therapist, to go and deal with meeting one that you didn't really like and that being triggering and then coming home and being able to make yourself a cup of tea as opposed to double down on it. So then the kindness method helps in that context, but more as a bridge to the sort of support that you might have needed anyway. Kind of uncovers that a bit. And so i guess the people who read the book fall into those two categories. Um, people who use it as sort of a safe private exploration of themselves to identify whether there's anything they'd like to explore further in a more focused fashion. And for other people it's like, yeah, that's exactly what I needed. I need, I need someone to literally tell me what to do without telling me what to do, if you know what I mean, like (laughs) tell me how to go (laughs) about doing what I want to do um, so I can get there. And that's what the kindness method does.
1: Thank you. So where do people find you on what's, what's your website and Instagram?
0: Instagram, Sharu Azadi, and Twitter is Sharu Azadi, and website is Sharu Azadi.
1: Great. We'll put all those in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you to our entire team behind the scenes at Glow. I'm so grateful for your care and commitment to serving our members around the world. Thank you to our teachers for so beautifully sharing your gifts and talents. I'm also grateful to our lovely community of Glow members. You've supported us since 2008, and because of you, we get to continue to do the work we love. It's the combined support of our team, our teachers, and our community that grants me the privilege to continue to bring you The Glow Podcast. Thank you to Lee Schneider, Red Cub Agency, for production support. And the beautiful music you're hearing now is by Carrie Rodriguez and her husband, Luke Jacobs. And remember, take care of yourself, because our world needs you. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. You can find The Glow Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or glo.com slash podcast or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Derek Mills.